I'm Bruce Berber, a contributor to the new anthology Los Angeles in the 70s. And my piece is called Bright Lights, Be City, about coming to Los Angeles in 1975 when it was a completely different city, considered a B city of sorts, and how that played out in terms of my life and changed my life. And I'm Tom Tyholtz. I'm also a contributor to uh, to Los Angeles in the 1970s. My piece is about a movie that was incredibly prescient that was made in 1979. It was Albert Brooks's first film called Real Life, and my piece is called When Reality Was a Joke, um, the making of Albert Brooks's Real Life in 1979. Cool. So, Tom, tell me, how did you come to write this piece? Well, you know, when I first started speaking to uh, David Kukoff, who's the um, editor of the anthology, he said that he wanted to find a story that was about the movie business or about the movies in L.A., but not sort of the obvious 70s Spielberg, um, Coppola, Lucas film, some other film that was incredibly influential, but um, was not so uh, obvious. And I came back to him with this idea of writing about real life, given that at the time I was uh, pitching this, um, we had a, a candidate for uh, – president who is now our president-elect who is a reality tv star yeah and it's funny because when i read your piece and i got to the last line the joke's on us uh it, it's not so funny anymore <laughs> right no no no. It, it was sort of uh it, you know that was the uh sense of forbidding foreboding and doom that uh that i had in the piece but again you know uh albert brooks if you look at any of his movies, it's amazing how ahead of the um, culture uh, he impressioned he was. And um, he's very much an um, underappreciated um, artist, um, not among film people, but among the larger public. And real life really holds up. It very much um, predicts all the trends we now see on reality TV programs. Yeah, it, it's funny, you know, and when you talk about Albert, you know, really being plugged in and having a good sense of what was going on at the time, um, my piece is all about B-movies, and one of, one of my favorite scenes uh, in all of the movies is in Albert Brooks's Modern Romance, where um, he is an editor of a B movie. I believe it's Modern Romance, right? Where he plays a film editor. Um, yep. And Jim Brooks is the director. And Jim Brooks is, he plays you know, a tour of this absolutely, you know, ridiculous B movie with George Kennedy. And they're in the sound studio. And I've been in these sound studios because I started out as, a, as an editor. And, you know, they're, they're looking for footsteps from the Hulk. And, and Jim Brooks has in his auteur vision just what it should sound like. And, uh, and somehow they find the sound effects. It, 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 they, it, they wanted sound effects for George Kennedy, I think, walking. And they wind up with the sound effects of the Hulk running. So the sound effect is called Hulk running. They put it in. And uh, 
Jim Brooks says, uh, wow, that's fantastic. What do you think? And the, um, the mixer with deadpan says to him, I think you saved the picture, you know, <laughs> get the whole, the whole deal. <laughs> now, how did you first come out to LA? I was an NYU uh, film school graduate and I, you know, I thought I was going to be a film editor actually. And I had some jobs in New York working on documentaries as an assistant editor. And then the jobs ended. I was out of work for a few months and my dad was coming out to LA and I knew people who had come out right after film school and were living, going, living here, going to the AFI, doing whatever they were doing. And I thought, you know, uh, he asked me, you want to tag along, see if there's any work out there. And so sure enough, I came out with him and he knew uh, the father of this director, Paul Bartel, who was doing Death Race 2000. He was about to start it. And he asked me if I wanted a job, you know, starting immediately. Uh, he couldn't pay me. I took the job. And I've been here ever since. This was in February 75. And, and Paul is a sort of a legendary figure. Uh, from Warhol's Underground. Um, he was, and, with Mary yes. Warnoff, and, and he made this movie um, that was really a seminal movie called Secret Cinema, which it was his, his first short, which basically has a lot in common with what we're talking about. In Secret Cinema, uh, a woman's life was being filmed, and she didn't know it. You know, So her life was a reality wow. show, except she were, she was the star, People were watching her. The Truman her, Show before the Truman life. Show. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. And then, and then, so, so after De Death Race 2000, did that launch your career, or did you have to recover from it? No, I mean, it, my career when you when you don't have a lot of money and you're in LA in 1975 and everything is super cheap, uh, and you're a kid you can afford to, to kind of look around for your career. If, you know, I mean, I, like everybody who graduated from NYU, I wanted to be a writer director, but I didn't have the stuff at the time to show. I, you know, nobody yeah. is about to hire me to do a real screenplay or direct a movie. And so I had to figure out ways to make a living. And, you know, it was easy to make a living for me at the time because I knew how to use editing equipment and I, and I, I was not a bad editor, but at that time, you know, you were taking jobs as an assistant editor. So you just basically had to know how to help the editor and, and use the machinery, which I knew how to do. So that was kind of a lot of how I paid my rent. And then when the show was over, I'd collect unemployment and write scripts and I could do this on and off for a number of years uh, until I had enough, written to you know get me a writing job or two and and, and you, that's how you broke into to being a con, a sitcom comedy writer was with a spec script correct yeah and i had friends you know one of whom is in the collection howard gewertz he was already working in comedy he was working on a show called bosom buddies and mm -hmm. uh he had been teamed up with a guy and and they were no longer partners i wrote a spec script I teamed up with Howard's ex-partner for a while, and we—that's you know, how we broke in. And so we worked together for you know four or five years, and then split off. And you know, I worked in sitcoms for for twenty years, and it was never anything that I had set out to do. 
you know, this uh, town you know, today I, has I, a I way just out. wrote a <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I sorry. Go this ahead. Town has a, this town has a way of just like you know, if you if you roll with it, and and at that point in time, as I said, people could afford to roll with it. It has a way. Uh, your career has a way of emerging in ways you never thought it would. Uh, um, uh, for sure, for sure. Today, I, I just um, wrote a piece which I um, about this anthology, which I which I just posted on Forbes.com, um, where I talk uh -huh. about how really this collection is about Los Angeles before it became L.A. That mm -hmm. in a certain way, the 1984 Olympics kind of was a turning point for L.A. After which, you know, there was Spago and California Cuisine and Randy Newman singing I Love L.A. And the whole place kind of grew up. But in the 70s, uh, and I'm sure when you first came out to L.A., it was kind of a much more smaller, insular, you know, hardly any museums. Yeah, I mean, and you that's know, kind of what I write about in, in this piece. I mean, I describe it in the terms of the way New Yorkers viewed it. And, you know, in the piece, I say, you know, the City of Angels was a cow town, Duluth with smog and avocados. You know, that was yeah. the way we were viewed. Yeah, uh, and, you know, very you know, much part, so. Part, and part of that is what made it exciting to be a young kid coming out here because any, it seemed like anything was possible. I mean, when I some, I moved in 75, but I got my first place on my own without a roommate somewhere around 79. And I lived in Santa Monica Canyon, a block and a half from, from the ocean. And I paid $150 a month for a guest house. Oh my God. Uh, a block and a half from a block and a half from the beach. And so this alone, you know, I had all these New Yorkers saying to me, Oh, LA sucks. New York, New York is the best. And I'm thinking, Oh, you know, I, I could kind of grip my teeth and agree with them. But the truth is this ain't so bad. <laughs> so that was, that yeah, was well, listen, 75. I mean, I, I came out to LA in the nineties. Uh, but uh, you know, even, even before that, I had the feeling that in New York, you know, if you, if you walk from your apartment to the corner, you had to step over five riders on the way there. And that when you right. came to LA, you know, it was all about like, can you, you know, can you just do the work? And that it was kind right. of the land of opportunity for creative people. That's right. That, that there, and I there was love, a constantly a big, a big, um, you know, machine that needed to be fed. It's absolutely true. And it was especially true in the case of television, you know, and, and my experience, um, you know, in later years, like, like the eighties when drugs were, you know, rampant in, in all forms of entertainment, music, whatever. And people said, Oh man, you're in, you're in TV. It must be crazy with the drugs." And I said, the people that I know in sitcom don't take, take drugs. They're all kind of nerds and all, we're all trying to get the next show out. We all have to right. do 22 episodes in a season. We don't have time, <laughs> you know. And of course, there were there were quite a few who were doing it. But you would be surprised at the majority of writers. I, I mean, we were industrious because we had deadlines and we we had, we had to to churn out material that made sense on some level. No, well, you were industrious because it's called the television industry, 
and, and at the time, right. <laughs> right? And at the time, the the you know film was where you know the auteurs and the writers and you know all the glory seemed to be. Um, but but TV was actually you know sort of the the steady work for 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 most people and really the um the base of the pyramid you know what uh William mm-hmm. Morris made on the Bill Cosby show you know is money you know no one will ever see again right and i got into tv simply because it was my first professional opportunity you know for writing so you went where where the opportunity took you and um it was you know, it was it was an interesting career. It was a great life. I'm really happy to be writing novels now, um, but TV put me in the position to do that. Now you have a novel that's just coming out, right? I have a novel that came out in 2015 that was published by Rare Bird called uh, Cascade Falls, which um, won uh, the Forward Book of the Year award which was kind of cool. And that was my second novel. The first novel I did was called Elevating Overman, which was, uh, um, which was Jason Alexander was attached to it. He wound up doing uh, the, the, the audio book for me. And that was really a kick. So now I'm, you know, slaving away at my third book and uh, writing these little pieces when I can, which is, which is fantastic. I, I know you're a very busy journalist. Is, is that correct? Well, uh, yes. I don't think one. If one's a journalist, I don't think one has a choice these days. Uh, you know, you have yes, to uh, write write more p- pieces for more places um, to make. You know, to get paid what I got paid 20 years ago. But but oh, I'm yeah. happy that there are all these places to uh, to actually do it at, and uh, you know that's the good news. And um, uh, this year, though, I actually did publish some uh, fiction for the first time on Nikki Fig's that's site, right. Hollywood Dementia, which oh, is kind nice. of fun. That's nice. That's kind of yeah, fun. Yeah, I mean, I've so, seen it. I, I, I've not read. I know people who have done stuff. I haven't. I haven't read the stuff. You know, I just keep. I just kept thinking about her <laughs> doing this, and I, I guess somebody makes money somewhere along the line. I know. I know when you're starting up stuff like that. Um, you know, because I, I was tempted. I said, you know, do I do this? And I said, oh, I don't know. And, you know, because with short pieces, you, you have a number of places you can go to. And I guess all of her stuff is entertainment oriented, the fiction. Right, right. I mean, what what one of the early reviewers said, which I think is, is true, is that the work may not be the most literary, but it is stories about Hollywood by people who actually know something about Hollywood, which is right. a change exactly. from a lot of what you read. So, exactly. so, so that's the advantage. It's a place to kind of tell stories that have the um, have the ring of truth. You know. You know, I have so I have so many Hollywood stories from from you know my career and stuff. But you know, it, it's really interesting when you work in television, especially in, on sitcoms. It's a very insular society there. And you'll go to work, you'll work maybe 60 hours, 70 hours a week sometimes, sitting around a table with a bunch of comedy writers. And your only frame of reference becomes Hollywood. Hollywood and what people are doing on other shows and what deal this guy made and what deal that guy. And you know what I found when I left, 
and I'm pretty much gone. You know, occasionally people call me to consult or whatever. But what I found was I just so wanted to write about anything but Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, and I, I, I understand it, that. It, it was funny because as I was leaving, I remember, you know, I was running a show and all these writers were talking about this writer and that writer and this show and that show. And the talk was so dull to me. And I realized that it was necessary talk for them because they were worried about, you know, what's their next job? Where are they going after this show? And, and I got it. But at the same time, I just wanted to expand my world and, you know, getting these novels published and meeting David and, you know, we met through Rare Bird and getting to know some of the members of the L.A. writing community has been really fun for me because I just get to see other points of view and meet people who are not sitcom writers, who are journalists and poets. And it's great. Yeah, it is great. And, and Rare Bird is a is a great publisher. Tyson Cornell's great. They're just actually publishing uh, uh, now a collection of my uh journalism from uh the 80s and 90s called being there. wonderful um wonderful. but um going back to your piece um in uh los angeles in the 70s uh tell me a little bit about you know uh, the the b film movie school um at the time was a was really it was a place where a lot of people got their chops Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I mean, who are some of the people that you kind of like saw, you know, coming out of there? Well, I I was peripherally involved. You know, I did this one movie, this one Roger Corman movie, which was a two-week shoot. But everyone around me was working on these movies, and Jonathan Demme, who I later worked with at Paramount. He was doing these Corman films. That's where he mm-hmm. cut his chops. And there were people, some direct, I mean, I never worked on Grand Theft Auto, which was Ron Howard's Ron right, Corman right. film. Right, that's the, that's the famous one, right. Yep. Yeah, and Jonathan Kent and Scorsese, uh, uh, he did a movie called Boxcar Bertho for American International. And I don't know whether Corman was at AIP then before he had started New World. But it seems to me that he was involved with Corman on some level as well. And, of course, Jack Nicholson did a Little Shop of Horrors for Corman. Right, right. And, and uh, Jonathan Kaplan. And there were yeah. quite quite a few. It, yeah, quite a few people who came out of uh, what was, you know, in a way, film school before film school was like, you know, the giant uh, business it is today. You know, I mean. Woody Allen's film, um, "What's Up, Tiger Lily," you remember that? Where they he was yeah. just handed. It wasn't Roger Corman. I think it was. It was. I don't think it was Roger Corman. It was. It was AIP. Maybe they handed him a bunch of you know old footage that they didn't couldn't do anything with, and they said right around this, you know, from some you know movie. In the, was it in the Philippines or something like that? And they, Roger Corman would do that all the time. He would have you know, extra footage from some movie that, that he acquired and he figured, okay, this takes up 45 minutes of screen time. So all I need is an extra 25 minutes because he would release 70 minute movies to the drive. So he would, you know, be able to make a movie for 20 cents and give some guy who'd never directed a feature a chance to, you know, get his feet wet. And, and that's how it worked. And if you now look back to the L.A. in the 70s, is there sort of one 
image that sticks with you about sort of, you know, the extent to which, you know, paradise is lost? Well, I mean, I would say if you look, well, you know, there's so many examples that, that movie, the movie industry is gone in a way. The A movie industry is, has been, you know, made into comic books and, and franchises. But the, sure. the picture that I see, honestly, is Santa Monica. You know, I talked to you about living in the canyon uh, in the 70s. And when I lived in Santa Monica, I was, you know, pretty close to what was then the Santa Monica Mall and is now the Promenade, the Third Street Promenade. And in those days, it was Santa Monica was a really, you know, kind of sweet, small town that had um, a lot of diversity and in, in, in certainly economic diversity. And that little mall had a Newberry's, a Woolworth's, a Penny's, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and I know today, that what used to, what became Third Street had like Army Navy stores and, and like, you know, correct. just, right? Right. And so in fact, an Army Navy store is an Army Navy store and a hometown mall paradise. Well, in a way it is because what you've got now is paradise lost in the sense that it's half gentrified and half street people. Um, so in a way, the promise of what it could be had not really been, has not been realized in the best way. Mm. Well, I, I think that's probably a good, good place as any to end our conversation. All right. And I just like to tell you, I, I want to tell you whether it's um, just off the record or, or whatever. Um, I play tennis uh, or at a, play tennis at a place with Jennings Lang's son. Um, Rocky oh, Lang. really? So I told him about I told him about the book. I told him about your piece. And uh, uh, Jennings me, Lang is a voice in uh, real life. He play he, he plays correct, the studio yeah. head just to. For our listeners, that's right. And Jennings Lang was a studio head. Um, and what you said in your piece is that in Albert's mind, there was only one voice he could picture in his head for this particular role, and it was Jennings Lang. And why don't you tell him how how he got this thing? It was, it was funny how he how he he got what he wanted out of Jennings Lang. So so Albert had this notion, and and he couldn't quite get. Uh, Jennings Lang to say exactly what he wanted. So what Albert did was that he would call him up and he would record these uh, conversations where uh, Albert would kind of provoke him, you know, to tell to tell old stories. And uh, Jennings Lang would, you know, spout uh, profanities and all kinds of, you know, would really cut loose. And then uh, Albert would take about three hours worth of uh, of conversation and find the one you know great piece for the th that appears in the film as a phone conversation and clip that out. And he said it's a technique that he did for the first time there that he's uh, used you know on many of his movies. Yeah, fantastic. So you know, I asked his son. I said do you have any recollection of this? And Rocky said that he did. Not only did he recall it, 
but he believes he has a copy of the check that uh, his <laughs> father got for doing the work, which was $37. Well, well listen, uh, at least he got paid. That, that, that's better than, you know, <laughs> happens all the time. That's right. Um, that's right. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing you at the party tonight. Yes, uh, it'll be great to meet you. Thank you very much, Tom, and thank you, Andrew. Uh, this was great.